Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Katrina Blowers. In today's episode, we are going to dive into one of my favourite topics that is in the news right now. I cannot get enough of this. As you know, Tom, I chew your ear off about this all the time. It is a blow-by-blow look at Elon Musk's wild ride at the helm of Twitter. Yeah, it is so fascinating. There's the sackings of the entire board, most of the executives, half the staff, the chaos around the blue tick subscription model, the parody accounts, the question about the business strategy. I mean, are we watching the biggest and most expensive brain explosion of all time? (laughs) We're diving into all of that in this episode. He massively overpaid for this sort of pet project, this sort of toy for him that he now, this big shiny thing that he now owns. And he's now in a desperate fight to try and get revenues up to the point where sort of the deal makes sense. Elon Musk's Twitter chaos. That is our briefing topic in the second half of the show. First, today's headlines. It is Tuesday the 15th of November. Well, more people have been told to flee their homes as flooding continues to smash inland New South Wales where there are 24 evacuation warnings in place. Yes, still absolutely wild scenes. So in the central west town of Forbes, residents have been told to leave this morning. The Lachlan River is rising, forecast to hit a new record by Thursday. And in the small town of Ugaura yesterday, uh, over 100 people were rescued by helicopter. So these are people on the roofs of their houses as flash flooding hit that town. Uh, Molong, Canoundra also hit hard by flooding and Wangala Dam on the Lachlan has been overflowing. Meanwhile, in South Australia, more than 20 schools and preschools are among 20,000 customers still without electricity there after the weekend storms cut the state off from interstate power. So really hectic Mm. weather and conditions in that part of the world too. We really need La Nina to get lost, don't we? Yeah, we do. Um, Yeah, feeling a bit jealous of Western Australia, which is forecast to have an incredible summer. So anyway, enjoy Mm. that, guys. (laughs) Well, yeah, it was predicted to end um, sometime around November. So hopefully we're getting the last of it. The inland parts of New South Wales have really been copping it the last few months. Earlier in the year, it was the coast, but it's just relentless in these small towns now. More Medibank data is being leaked. Another 500 health records have been posted online, this time relating to mental health and other illnesses. Yeah, this is one of the most horrible leaks. So um, last week we were talking about the details of patients for alcohol addiction as well as abortions earlier in the week, and now we're talking about mental health treatment. There are lawyers working on a class action against Medibank, and they say... They've been inundated so far with interest. We've had to speak to people who've been in tears as a result of their data being uh, released. They're very frightened. Some have had their addresses revealed to people who are stalking them. This is a very, very serious situation. That's George Newhouse from Centennial Lawyers. So this information of almost 10 million customers was stolen in a cyber attack. So I think we can expect more damaging leaks, Mm. unfortunately. I know just speaking to a few customers who are in limbo land right now, they don't know whether their data's been leaked or not. They say that they just feel so powerless. They haven't been able to get through to anyone in Medibank to talk to anyone about it. Like they've already gone online and changed a lot of details, Mm. but they 
say, you know, forevermore they're going to feel like they're being a gatekeeper for their own lives and that's not a nice place to be. Yeah, and Medibank's got their AGM tomorrow. The hacker said they're going to pause the data releases for the AGM and then start again after that. So who knows what they're going to release next. It'll be a bit of an interesting annual general meeting. The share price is down 20% and the, the company's in crisis. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will meet China's President Xi Jinping today. This is the first formal meeting between an Australian leader and the Chinese president in over five years. This was confirmed only yesterday. And Tom, the meeting's going to happen on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali. So I guess there'll be lots of things Anthony Albanese will want to get into the conversation. Probably, you know, right up there on the list will be the $20 billion worth of trade sanctions on Australian exports. We enter this discussion uh, with goodwill. Uh, There are no preconditions on this discussion. I'm looking forward to having constructive dialogue. Yeah, so I think just the fact that we're having this conversation at all is a huge Mm. breakthrough and China has indicated publicly that they want to meet us halfway. Uh, So hopefully we can see some, you know, relief for those um, trade sanctions. Meanwhile, the US president has described as very blunt his discussions with the Chinese leader. We had an open and candid conversation about our intentions. I love it. They're all going to sort of try and posture as to how tough their conversation was with mm. Xi Jinping. <laughs> Mine was very blunt. Oh, I really gave oh, it to Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, we have no way of verifying that at all. Hello, Mr. Uh, this G. Me- <laughs> yeah. Uh, this meeting went for three and a half hours. That could be because Biden has made several references to defending Taiwan during his mm. presidency. So I'm sure that came up uh, maybe once or twice, while China maintains they want the island to be reunified with the mainland. I reckon I'd bring up the exports before I got onto the subject of Taiwan. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, that would be my opening line of inquiry, I think. Yeah. Um, So there's also speculation about how people at this summit are going to respond to Russian delegates. So Vladimir Putin is not there, but the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, is there. Um, Reportedly, he went to hospital for a heart problem, but the Russian spokespeople are saying he's in perfect health. Anyway, some world leaders are planning to walk out when he speaks, but Anthony Albanese has said that he won't be doing that. He says that's out of respect to the host leader, Indonesian President Joko Widodo. Kathleen Folbig. Now, she's the woman who spent almost 20 years in jail for killing four of her babies, is having her case heard again. There is a second inquiry beginning in Sydney. Since 2019... Further specific information about a genetic variant in the DNA samples of Sarah and Laura Folbig has emerged. That's the counsel assisting the inquiry, Sophie Callan there. This is a very intriguing story. So Kathleen Folbig has been referred to as Australia's worst female serial killer since she was found guilty of the murders of three of her children in 2003, along with the manslaughter of a fourth child. So she has always maintained her innocence. Uh, Her marriage has broken down since this has all happened as well. And now new evidence has come to light showing a genetic mutation called CALM2 G114R could in fact be responsible for the deaths of her two girls. And this gene can cause an irregular heartbeat and sudden death. Uh, Last year, 150 experts from around the world signed a petition calling for her pardon and they cited the findings of an ANU report. So if this inquiry 
cast doubts over her conviction, the case could be referred to the Court of Criminal Appeal again. So this is one we'll keep an eye on. And Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos has pledged to give away the majority of his $185 billion fortune during his lifetime. Incredible news. Yeah, these American billionaires are are quite amazing with the amount of wealth that they pledge. Uh, He's devoted the bulk of it to fighting climate change and supporting people who can unify humanity in the face of deep social and political divisions. I read that he gave $100 million to Dolly Parton for her to use Mm. um, for her charitable causes. Yeah, he has come under fire in the past because, you know, Amazon doesn't have an amazing record on climate change um, for doing things, you know, in that green space. And and he's also come under fire for not signing this thing called the Giving Pledge. That was started by Bill Gates when he was married uh, to Melinda Gates. That's um, hundreds of the world's richest people have signed that pledge um, to donate the majority of their wealth to charitable causes, including notably Jeff Bezos. Bezos's ex-wife. So maybe that put the heat on him to do something significant. Ah, right. The ex-wife signed it and he hadn't. That's, that's interesting. I guess they've all <laughs> Awkward. Got, yeah, they've all got their, their own ways of, not all, but the, the, the ones who, you know, give huge amounts, they've got different ways of doing it. So some sign that giving pledge, which is essentially putting half of your wealth in an investment fund that the endowment then pays for all these causes. Um, we had the really interesting story of the founder of Patagonia, who's keeping the whole company um, in a self-sustaining model and giving it away, not passing on the, the value of the company to his children. So really interesting trends in philanthropy in America. There's not such a big culture of it here. Um, and I think mm. it would be great if that changed. Although the couple who started Canva, who are Australian, they have signed this giving pledge too. So, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. I guess this is a... Um, an American cultural phenomenon that we should follow. All right, Tom. Well, speaking of very rich people, today we are going to have a look at what is going on with Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Well, maybe this is a weird act of philanthropy. He seems to be throwing money away. Jeez. Now let's get into the chaotic roller coaster that's been Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. David Swan is the tech editor at the Australian newspaper. David, thank you so much for joining us on the briefing. How would you rate Elon Musk's performance as the head honcho of Twitter so far? I don't know if it's possible to put it on a numerical scale. I think it's been a complete shit show and it's just been um, exactly what I thought it was going to be, which is just really fun to report on as a journalist and as a technology writer, but um, just insane as a user and someone sort of watching it from a, from a distance. I have enjoyed the spectacle and the theatre of this, I have to say, but the company employs a lot of people whose livelihoods have been affected by this. I guess part of the fascinating chaos arises from the fact that we can see Elon Musk seemingly thinking out loud. He's tweeting about all of his decisions, his ideas, his justification for this. But do you think that that is a good thing for the platform as it navigates this big transition? No, I think it's it's fun in the short term. And I think that it would be funny if it wasn't so serious and if issues of sort of democracy and sort of the future of the internet and how we connect online weren't at stake, And but, but they are. I've got friends that worked at Twitter and 
colleagues who sort of left journalism, for example, and took jobs at Twitter. And the way that their layoff was handled was just they weren't able to log into their slacks, for example. Um, they were just locked out of their systems, which is just a horrible way to, to treat somebody. And the way that this has been handled has been really, I think, just ill thought out. Um, it's been really rash. Everything's happened all of a sudden. I don't think that that's the way you want to, in an ideal world, manage a platform where it's just critically important to the future of democracy. I think it is that important. And I don't, as I said, it's fun as a journalist to be reporting. Not it's fun to see colleagues go, but it's been, you know, entertaining. But this platform is way more important than that. The firing of so many people, and I guess how senior a lot of those people were, was very alarming to watch. And I've read reports that he's trying to hire some of the people back. Do you know if there's any truth to that? Yeah, a colleague based in the US, um, Casey, reported that and reported some of the sort of chat transcripts that were happening in Slack. So, you know, that pretty much verifies it to me that Elon fired too quickly. He said, you know, he's 50% of the staff that are gone from really critical teams, you know, like moderation and and safety policies and um, across the board, like Tesla, he's basically gotten rid of the entire comms people. I've heard that globally he has sort of two comms people left and just fired dozens upon dozens of, of comms people. So he doesn't really believe in PR or comms. And then, yeah, we're seeing messages where he's like, ah, shit, I probably need some of these people back and I've maybe oh. fired a few too many people. Well, he's sacked the CEO, the chief financial officer, the head of legal and policy, a whole bunch of other senior executives, and then whole other teams, including the human rights team. Can one person do the job of all these other people who had a lot of deep knowledge about Twitter and and how it works? I don't think so. And one thing I would say is I think I and, and some people agreed with the notion that Twitter's leadership was a bit stale and they'd been there for quite a long time. Um, it had been sort of the same group of people running Twitter for its existence, really. And that, you know, for it to really grow and, and compete more with Facebook and some of the other platforms, it did need sort of some fresh ideas. So I think that can be true at the same time as not firing absolutely everybody basically at the top leadership. And I think we've seen that play out now once you get rid of all that sort of knowledge and leadership that have been there for a long time, that's when sort of just things get a bit crazy and, and they have been. Let's go into uh, the changes to the blue tick, which, you know, is meant to verify people's accounts and, and I guess show people who follow them that whatever information they put out into the world comes from at least a verified source or a, a real person. They used to be hard to get, but Elon Musk has floated the idea of a subscription-based model, which was rolled out over the weekend. Talk to us about how that has played out and whether you think that that was a good idea to begin with. I hated it from the get-go. I think Elon probably looks at that as like an elitist kind of classist thing of like, oh, there's the media class, for example, and celebrities who have their blue ticks and they're at a different level to every other citizen. And I look at it more where news needs to be able to be trusted, especially in 2022 where everything's so divided and partisan and there's so much fake news around. I think ultimately you can't have a verification system that just works on, oh, I pay $8 and then I get a blue tick. It's like that's not verification of anything other than I can pay $8. I know when we had to go through it as journalists, we had to like, I had to change my email associated with my Twitter account to be my work email. 
I had to have a, a picture that looked like me. I couldn't have like a mm. cartoon or something. So I had to go through all these steps. And those steps are important because they actually do verify that you are who you are. And for Elon to sort of throw that out the window means that Twitter just becomes a place that you can't really trust. Well, there's two ideas being confused, I think, in this move. You know, you're saying it's not a verification process anymore, which seems more or less true. It's a subscription process. And so on the revenue side of the equation, that's what he wants to do. He wants to diversify their revenue away from just advertising. And that's why he's gone for this subscription model. That makes sense. But to challenge the ideology of the verification process, that side of it doesn't make sense because the whole conversation during the deal-making process was about verifying the bots and improving the quality Mm. of Twitter. And this move seems to go against that. And the only justification that makes sense is the revenue case. Exactly. I wrote an article about it a couple of months ago where I interviewed an ex-CIA agent who um, told me that he thinks that eight out of 10 accounts on Twitter are bots. And then Elon tweeted that article out and he was like, that sounds a lot more than 5%. Twitter had said that only 5% of, of its mm-hmm. accounts are bots. Best article did performance-wise for me um, in terms of subscriptions and readers. So thank you, Elon, for tweeting my article. He knows now he overpaid, right? So it was a $44 US billion and all the tech valuations are down across the board. He massively overpaid for this sort of pet project, this sort of toy for him that he now, this big shiny thing that he now owns. And he's now in a desperate fight to try and, get revenues up to the point where sort of the deal makes sense. I think you're right. He needs to split it out and say that pay $8 and you do get a bunch of features that I'm Mm. sure plenty of people would be happy to pay less ads. You know, you can do more on the platform, things like that. But then put, you know, a dollar sign next to your username, not a verified blue tick. Just put something that shows you've paid, not something that shows you are who you say you are because it's just it's not working at all and um, the whole platform is just suffering as a result. Yeah, Tom and I have had a lot of conversations about how relevant we think Twitter is as a platform now. I mean, in Australia, it's pretty much just journalists and politicians who are on that platform. Can you describe for us how relevant it is in the US, for example? And I mean, Elon Musk is saying that he's since his takeover, he's had a huge increase in users. Is there any way of verifying that as well? He's tweeted out graphs that that do show sort of the daily active users on the platform are up. Australia, I feel like it never really cut through to sort of the mum and dad or the bloke at the pub who are saying, I need to check Twitter every day. I just don't think that that, that's true in a way that us as journalists have to use it and politicians are obviously on there. But I don't think it, in Australia at least, it ever really cut through to just being super relevant for everyday people that feel like I need to be on there to find out what's going on. I think that the immediate uptick that we're seeing in terms of usage is like people that want to watch the car crash and can't look away. And they're saying that <laughs> this is the total shit show. I want to look. I want to look. Everyone's talking about it. Um, Elon's bought this thing. What's he doing with it? In terms of long-term sustainable growth, probably not. I think you want it to be a trusted place where people feel like they can be themselves and still feel like they're, they're safe. On, on the platform. So yeah, I look at it as a sugar hit rather than any kind of long-term sustainable growth probably. So the other debate Katrina and I have had is about Elon Musk's judgment and whether <laughs> what might look crazy from the outside could be some kind of genius. And he's, you know, got a very impressive track record, PayPal and then with Tesla. 
I mean, initially I was sort of, you know, watching and going, well, I'm not going to bet against Elon, you know, at the start, yeah. even though what he did when he made this bid did not make sense to me. Um, the amount of money he was paying, this bold hope that he could somehow turn the revenue story around when you'd had Jack Dorsey and a team that had worked really hard on that already. I didn't think that somehow he's going to be able to flick the switch and turn this around as a business. And I also worried that this was really an ego trip. I saw how often he was tweeting for such a busy person with that many children, let alone like things he needs to do in his <laughs> professional life, to be spending so much time just speaking his mind. He seemed to really love the attention, which I saw as a red flag. But I held back that judgment because he was so successful. Now it seems to be fulfilling my fears. It seems to be playing out that it was an ego trip, that it was a bad financial decision, that there wasn't obvious low-hanging fruit that he could pick off to turn the ship around. Yeah, we're watching sort of the meltdown of the platform in real time. And I think what people forget or sort of it becomes an inconvenient part of the narrative was like, he wasn't the founder of Tesla. He sort of came in as CEO later. That's right. He was a co-founder of PayPal, but he wasn't the technical brains behind it. He's an amazing showman, an amazing salesman. His brain's obviously incredibly impressive on some levels, but he's not the one that's like coming up with the engineering plans for the Tesla cars, for example. So I think people sort of say he is Tesla, he is PayPal, but it's like you got to separate those things out a little bit. And he helped them to great success from obviously being like sort of this visionary. But I don't think that extends to the sort of engineering leadership that would be needed at somewhere like a Twitter, for example, to improve it. It's a real shame on some levels that we are trusting this guy to to do all these incredibly important things for humanity, whether that's sort of go to Mars, right? But you have this one guy who's like obviously incredibly ego-driven, incredibly easily distracted. He has to be running like eight companies at once. Like it wasn't enough to get humanity to Mars. It was like, no, I also have to be controlling what people say online as well. Mm. I'm the same as you, I think, Tom, in terms of wanting to give him the benefit of the doubt. I look a bit like Kanye where it's like, oh, he had all these great hits mm. and these banger albums of the past, but now he's just like sort of gone too far and in a similar way to Kanye, needs people to rein him in. He needs like someone, like some trusted offsiders sort of by his side saying, look, dude, you're awesome. You're great. You're doing great things for humanity, but these things over here that you're doing are a bit too far and I think he's probably just surrounded by yes men Unfortunately, as a lot of people in those positions sort of can be, he's just off on his own tangent, in his own bubble. And you can see it in real time on his Twitter feed. He needs someone to help him chill out a little bit. So that was David Swan, who's the tech editor at The Australian. So Katrina, are you still holding out hope for Elon or are you sort of coming around to, you know, to my fears right- and doubts? <laughs> Right up until the moment where he compared him to Kanye and I just went, (laughs) oh, you know what? There are a lot of similarities there. I still did hold out hope that perhaps there was this genius strategy at play, but now I'm not so sure. What do you reckon? No, I'm I'm pretty much thinking this is going badly and it's going to cost him big time financially. He's having to sell Tesla stock at a low price to put money into Twitter. That concerns me about his financial position. So I think he actually could be in real trouble here. (laughs) 
Tomorrow on The Briefing, a detective from one of Australia's most harrowing investigations spills the beans on how they got uh, these criminals. More details on that tomorrow. Listener.